Welcome to Cool Story with Bree and Bridie. This week, I share a series of books about an epic family saga. Bree's back from Egypt with a lot to say. While she was away, I was at Taylor Swift and also experiencing a lot of high highs and low lows. I'm Bridie Jabour. And I'm Bree Lee. Hey, Bridie. Bree, welcome back. I haven't seen you in almost a month. So long. I really missed you. I missed you as well. I missed chatting to you. I lost my book mojo while you were gone. <laughs> Usually when you're here, I'm like reading a book a week. The entire month you were gone, I read one book. I really love the implication that I might be even the slightest good influence on you. <laughs> <laughs> what did you read? Wait for Me, a memoir by Deborah Devonshire, a.k.a. Duchess of Devonshire. Uh, I don't know who that is or what you're talking is, about. She <laughs> was, she's dead now, not a spoiler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she was the youngest Midford sister. Do you know much about the Midford sisters? No. Really? No. Oh, my God. This is, okay, this is really good listening for anyone else who doesn't know. Yeah, it is. You yeah. Don't, so you haven't heard of Nancy Midford, The Pursuit of Love? Zero. She wrote quite a few books, but she wrote The Pursuit of Love and Love in a Cold Climate, which are like the classics that everyone's still reading today. Very funny books, very brilliant. She was the oldest child of, I think there were six sisters or five sisters and one brother. So she ended up this very famous novelist. She was always hanging out with Evelyn Waugh, right. all those kind of people. I was about to ask, like, what generation are we talking yeah, about Yeah, so she's, they're all um, coming of age around World War II, basically. Oh, well, there is a big gap in age because there's so many siblings. I think they were all born around, like, the 30s or just after fir- um, the First World War. Very, very famous sisters. They were, like, incredibly famous in their time. So there was Nancy who wrote those books There was Unity who became a devoted follower of Hitler. That's a curveball already. (laughs) Became a fascist, went over to Germany and became very close to Hitler. And when World War II started, she shot herself because she couldn't bear her beloved home country, England, to be at war with her beloved fascist country of Germany. And she survived the suicide attempt and was cared for for the rest of her life by her mother. Yeah. She was wow, like, yeah. yeah. And so this is in like, what, 1935. She would have shot herself. And so she was evacuated back then to England and recovered. So it's quite amazing because she shot herself in the head. Also generous to then take care of someone who's, yeah, anyway. Who's what? Like a mad Nazi. Many people in this family did not care about that. That right. like it, they, uh, none okay. of them. She was definitely not shunned for being a Nazi. Oh boy! There was their sister Diana, who was incredibly beautiful, um, and she ended up marrying the heir to the Guinness fortune. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, and then she had kids, and then she left her husband because she had an affair with Sir Oswald Mosley, who was the big. Do, have you heard of him? Famous British politician, also. Massive fascist. <laughs> so two sisters went fascist. Their, their other sister, Decca, went to fight in the, well, went to help and assist in the Spanish Civil War <laughs> on the side of the communists. And Sorry. she was, a, yeah, it's an, you would love, like, the... This I is can't unhinged. Believe, I know, it is. I can't believe it's, like, never really touched your consciousness before because there's, like, so many, like, movies, books about them. Like, they're very... Famous because they and so they all ended up very very famous 
in like all the social pages because it was like, you know, Nancy writing these books and becoming very well known, but also like this sister being really close with Hitler, this other sister's like married to the heir of the Guinness fortune and leaves him for a fascist politician. They were jailed, Diana and Lord The fascist Mo- and posi- politician. Yeah, yeah, in World War Two, you know, for being traitors yeah. to England. She'd just had a baby and they wouldn't let her keep her baby with her in jail. Like it's pretty hard. Like some of the stuff is quite harsh. And their communist sister then ran away to America. She was friends with JFK <laughs> and was hanging out with him. Yeah, like really, like the the spread of touch. And she became like an investigative journalist, did this extraordinary expose of the funeral industry because she had a child and a husband die in pretty quick succession. Like there's a lot of tragedy all across this family. Mm. Had a child and a husband died in pretty quick succession and could see that she was getting ripped off in the funerals. And then she wrote this book that was like seminal in America, exposing all the dirty tactics of the funeral industry. And she was like an avowed communist all her life. And one of like the really interesting things of this family is that her favourite sister and the sister she was closest to was Unity. So the friend of Hitler and the communist, like there was a falling out between them. But you know, they were, they loved each other so much still. Like there's a lot of complexity and like humanity and like why do people do things and like political beliefs and like the biggest events of the 20th century all like clashing up against each other with these sisters. And no emails. No emails. (laughs) Oh my God, so many letters. This is another reason they're quite famous because they wrote to each other all the time. And do we still have most of them? We have so uh, many of them. And so when people have done biographies of them. There's actually material. Yeah, but also they wrote their own memoirs. Like Decca (laughs) wrote her own memoirs. Um, Of course they did. (laughs) Yeah, and like Nancy's books are like very thinly disguised portraits of the family, a couple of them, and like her most famous books are famous for like the portrait they paint of their incredibly eccentric family like their father didn't believe in education for girls so the first few like didn't go to school but by the time you got to the youngest she did end up going to school but they were taught by their mother and a governess how to read and write yeah some of them incredibly passionate readers and not Deborah the youngest though so we haven't even got to the youngest so this is just like all her older sisters so (laughs) Yeah. This is not what I thought you were going to say, and it is so nice to to realise that you have, like, speaking for myself, that I have, like, this pocket of, like, kind of ignorance that I can now go and fill. Well, I'll tell you the best book to read, which you would love, because I assume that you would have heard of Nancy, but, of course, we can't all know everything, so it's yeah. no reflection on you that you'd never heard of her. But there's a great miniseries done really recently called The Pursuit of Love based on one of Nancy's books, which I recommend. When I watched it, it was on Amazon. It's probably still there. It is brilliant. A TV series. Yeah. Yep. It's like a Brit- one of those great British miniseries, oh, you know, I done. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. And it's very funny and very well done. And I loved it. It only came out a couple of years ago. It's just called The Pursuit of Love. The best book I about the Midford Sisters is just called The Sisters by Mary Lavelle. Mm-hmm. And that goes through everything and has a lot of quotes from letters and is incredibly well researched. But yeah, they've all written their own memoir. There was one boy, Tom, very beloved, who ended up becoming a barrister and died in World War II. Wow. So they lost their only brother in World War II. There's another sister, Pam, who's like 
maybe like unkindly thought of as like the most boring one. <laughs> yeah, and but she, like if boring's because you're not a Nazi or a fascist, then please be boring. <laughs> yeah, but the others are like communists and writing best-selling novels and like being investigative journalists. And the youngest, which is the memoir I just read, Debo, became a duchess. So she married a second son. I forgot that that's where we yeah. started. And so she married, and I don't think her memoir is like super as famous. As, it, well, I know it's not as famous as Decker and Nancy's books, and I've read a couple of Decker's and a lot of Nancy's. But I was just interested in her, in her memoir, and I love that it's called Wait For Me because that's such a younger sibling thing, and that's why it's called that. But she married a second son, and the older brother died in the war. And so he became, inherited the dukedom and everything. And then so she became a duchess. And I think it must be because of what avid letter writers they all are. She is such a natural writer. She is a great writer. She is a terrific snob. Oh! Like, like she's so, she lived until the early noughties. So she lived a very long time. Like she lived until until her 90s. Mate, I think that if you'd married into a family worth a billion dollars, you'd have a good chance of living to your nineties. Yeah, 90s yeah true. <laughs> but, and but you know, she never smoked. Not a big like all those things. Like mm, she boring. Had, she had yeah, <laughs> exactly. I know it kills me when someone's like yeah. reaches like a really healthy old age and their mind is still really sharp, and it's like why? And they're like, I don't smoke or drink. You're like, oh. yeah, I play because <laughs> I very much plan to take up smoking again when I'm seventy. But yeah, the, the best book is by Mary Lavelle. But this memoir, like, I will lend you because she's such a terrific snob, and it's like. So such. She's ultra, ultra posh. So she just has the funniest views just thrown into the book where like she has a little rant about how political seats like MP seats should be hereditary <laughs> and how they, they and how they shouldn't have got rid of it. <laughs> and and she's like, is, is it not the best apprenticeship if you grow up with your father as an MP? Isn't it natural that you would be the best person? <laughs> I can't believe you wrote this down and published it. And and she's also like she just so glossed her favorite sister. Well, she was loved Decca and Decca's Decca like ran away from home when she went to join like the Spanish Civil War as a communist. She got on a train and told her parents that she was going to meet her friend in France and go on a little holiday. Her father then said goodbye to the train station. I'll see you in a few weeks. Didn't see her again for 15 years. <gasps> yeah, because wow. she she went to Spain and then she ended up going to America. That really is running away from yeah, home. Yeah, so she properly ran away from home. And she, but also it's obviously the age of like you can't just casually yeah. jump on a plane and yeah, yeah. get home. Like, you know, you get to America, you're not yeah. going back home for a while. You know, the journey would take too long. And Debo's perspective on all that, like, is so interesting because it says the youngest sister and she's just talking. And, like, this made headlines at the time. Like, it was in the newspaper that this peer's daughter had run away to the Spanish War. And, like, they didn't know where she was for weeks or maybe even, like, more than a month. And her mum is frantically trying to find her. And it, it sound, like it's, it's all these salacious news headlines, but when you see it from Debo's perspective and she writes it, she was a teenager and she's like, all of a sudden she was gone. She didn't tell me she was going. She was like out of the house. She was one of my best friends. I had this special language with, they'd created their own language together. And then she was just gone. And she also, some of the things she writes about, like her first pregnancy was a stillbirth. She had multiple miscarriages. She also had one or two babies die hours after being born. Like she had, yeah, it's really tragic. And the way she writes about it is like, Yes, it was upsetting, but, you know, there's a war going on, so people have it a lot worse than I did. Like, she's, it's so, like, that stiff upper lip, don't really have any emotions about it, yeah. which is, like, very extraordinary 
to read. Yeah. And she also just met so many people. She was like her sister-in-law was was JFK's older sister. So she was quite close with the Kennedy What family. a Venn diagram yeah. of like party guests. And so she was going to J- – she went to JFK's coronation. Like they would come and stay with her. She describes this house, which is like her main house that she ended up moving into where the Duchess is supposed to live. And she does say it was grand and that like part of it's open to the public and talks about how she redesigned it. And then you look it up, photos of it. It is – more fancy than Buckingham Palace. Like, it is so big. It's like this massive castle that she was living in. And, like, Prince Charles would come and stay with her. And, like, she hung out with, like, the Queen Mum. And they... The Queen Mum. They knew the Queen Mum so well they called her Cake. Like, she had cake. a nickname. Yeah, she had a nickname because they've got nicknames for everyone. And so it's really extraordinary going through the book in that way because she was so close to a lot of huge events. Like she was at the, you know, Queen Elizabeth's coronation. She was hanging out with Elizabeth and Margaret when they were just the princesses. Then she's also hanging out with JFK. And one of my favourite anecdotes in it that I thought that you would like was, of course, she has more than one house. So she has a massive castle she lives in. She's a time splitter. Yeah, yeah. And then she's got her massive London home. And then she's got this huge, most egregiously, this huge castle in Ireland. Which some Irish locals aren't happy about and she brushes off. And obviously I'm reading it being like, you shouldn't be there. Um, But she has this huge castle and then she spends, so she's like a month, two months in Ireland in this huge castle every year and like. Which months? (laughs) Sorry. She was there. She was there. She was either in Ireland. She was in Ireland or, you know. Oh, wait, she's had dead just, now, right? Had ju- yeah, had Sorry. just been there when um, Prince Philip's uncle was murdered by the IRA. Like, she's close to all of that. She's like, she ended up getting police escorts whenever she was in Ireland because of that. And I'm like, maybe you just shouldn't go. Yeah. But she had this great anecdote where she's in her castle in Ireland and she's like slightly an unreliable narrator because she's slightly. A, the way she sees the world is like obviously from another planet. Yeah. So she describes this woman as like living on a cottage on the edge of the <laughs> the grounds and like being a very homely person who's always in the garden. And I'm like, was she though? What? Like she's coming to your house for dinner. Like how homely was this person? But whatever. But anyway, she, this woman, um, she apparently was like quite a cranky woman, but she really liked Debo. And so she would come for dinner. And while she was there for dinner, Debo's friend, Givenchy, Givenchy, how do you say it? Givenchy. Givenchy was there for dinner. Like that's who <laughs> she's hanging out with. So Givenchy's there for dinner. This woman who lives on the edge of her estate is there. And she turns to Givenchy and she's like, that has no idea who he is really. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I'm going to Italy to visit my brother. You're a dressmaker. Should I have my cotton skirts taken up or let down? What will be the best fashion for the time? (laughs) And, yeah, asking him so, like, so casually. And he says, I would love to make you a couple of dresses. I'll measure you up. (gasps) So takes her to a back room, measures her up, and Debo, the terrific snob, is giggling away to herself because this woman has, like, a hump on her back that the Givenchy (laughs) is measuring around. (laughs) Yeah. And then he, he goes back to... Paris or wherever he is. His atelier is, yeah. Yeah, and hand makes her <laughs> dresses and gets them delivered to her in these special boxes. Yeah. And this woman is just so casually, oh, thank your friend for the dresses. And she's got like hand, like <laughs> made. made by yeah. Mr. Gervais. And so she's himself, got like yeah. this tons of great anecdotes like that. But it's also just interesting to read 
she was so close to so many events. Like she went over to JFK's funeral as well and she knew his brother who was assassinated as well and then she talks about talking to their mother and what it was like to talk to a mother who had lost so many family members in such a tragic way and yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a great great book. I had I just as a side note, I have been so entertained <laughs> listening to you okay. talk about this. <laughs> That's fascinating. Well, I hope that the yeah, I hope yeah. everyone else, I wasn't expecting to explain to you the whole Memphis, but they are so interesting. You would love the sisters, like yeah. by Mary Lavelle. I would start with that book. So what was the name of the one that you read and and then the Amy Lavelle one is like the intro? So Mary Lavelle is just called The Sisters. But if you just Google Midford Sisters and Mary Lavelle, like that book is still in print. You're, you could pick it up almost in any secondhand bookshop. Like it's so ubiquitous. It's everywhere. The memoir I read was um, by Deborah Devonshire called Wait For Me. And right. she's a very natural writer. Also just other, like even if she hadn't been close to all these historical events of the 20th century, there's even parts because she's the youngest she outlived all her sisters and her yeah. brother. And she writes about, she has a whole chapter about like towards the end, each of her sister's deaths wow. and where she was. And like she would go and nurse because not all of them had children. She nursed some the ones that she could nurse. She would go and like lie by their bed and she described what it was like. And then her favourite fascist slash great beauty, Diana, <laughs> she just has this sentence in it that really struck me where she said for months after I would pick up my pen to write to her and realise there was no point. But, yeah, it, it is a great book. So that was like the one book that I read while you were away. Fair enough. <laughs> what do you read after that? Like how do I you know, follow actually, that up? Yeah, and, it, it well, I started reading a modern novel, had a lot of text messages in the first couple of chapters that I, like, I was like, I can't bear to read. And like, and the problems in this novel was like, I have to get a job that I don't like. And it's like after reading this book where she's like, obviously she had an immense privilege. She had immense loss in her life as well. Like all those babies and her sisters and. A different sense of stakes. Yeah. It's hard to, it feels like a real change of gears often when you're reading. And yeah, and also something I think I've referenced a lot when I'm reading novels on nonfiction set around like the 40s and 50s and 60s is it is also very clear in this book how long it took England to recover from World War II. Like you think it's over in 1945, but it, there was rations into the 50s. Yeah. And it's a good reminder on that because it makes me think about like this incredibly volatile economic time that we are in at the moment post-pandemic. And it just, it's good perspective thinking this is how it goes. Like you have this big seismic, terrible event. Seismic, I think. Seismic, terrible <laughs> event. It's years and years to recover from yes. that. So it's not, it, like things feel a bit shit at the moment or very shit at the moment. It's not going to be like this forever. Like my mantra on this show all the time where I'm like, and I read this book and I thought it's not going to be like this forever. <laughs> <laughs> and yet also on a daily basis, have a sick one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I need to keep straight. It's getting harder and harder to have a, a sick, sick one. one. <laughs> oh, my God, right? No, that's the saddest thing you ever say. Oh, we'll get it's to It's getting harder and harder yeah. to have a sick one. <laughs> that's my um, like most devastating short story sentence. <laughs> yeah. Bridie Javor saying it's harder and harder for me to have a sick one. What did you read? So I have just come back from Egypt, obviously, and something I want to mention as like an intro to what have I been reading was obviously reading a lot about Egypt written by Egyptian authors or, you know, like Egyptian Australian, Egyptian American authors, books by non-Egyptians but set in Egypt reflecting on Egypt. And I have obviously done a huge amount of prep before I left 
to read about Egypt before I went. And not only because these trips that I sort of run and go on are for readers and we do book clubs while we're there, but also just because I think, A, it's my disposition to do that. And B, I think I'm, you know, I try pretty hard to be a good tourist and a good traveler and getting yourself a bit fucking educated before you go is a critical part of that. And this long preamble is about how I felt like I had done a fair amount of searching around for books by and about Egyptians. And then I went to three different bookstores in Egypt and was absolutely blown away by having such an in real life physical reminder of the value of local bookstores, even internationally, because there are so many I came home with 12 books, 12 new books that I bought overseas, which not only had I obviously not read, but had never even seen or heard of until I was on the ground in a bookstore in Egypt. And this is said, you know, as someone that did a fair bit of work around it. Oh, yeah, I I love to walk. It's one of the first things I do in any country. Well, back in BC before children. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. Is, I would love to do that. Go to a local bookstore and buy, usually I buy a novel yep. and then read, and I love reading that novel while I'm in yep. the country. That's also, yes, we are very alike in that way. Yeah. But Although it, I think I'm doing a, I'm not, I don't think that I'm doing it to be a good tourist. I don't think that I'm that nice. I think I'm just. <laughs> oh, it's like, what's interesting to me? I just love reading a book in the place that yeah. it's set yeah. from. And that's like a huge part of these trips is that we all do that and then have book clubs and conversations about them together in the place. It's such an extraordinary way of like deepening your appreciation and understanding. But anyway, the book that I want to talk about, it's called Sex and the Citadel, Intimate Life in a Changing Arab World. Um, and it's by Shireen El Feki or Feki, F-E-K-I. Um, it was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award back in 2013. I wonder if one of the reasons I hadn't sort of heard about it that much is because it's been a decade since yeah, totally. it's been out now. Yeah. But also, if anyone has been a longtime listener of the podcast, um, you would remember that one of the books that I highly rate that I have ever read sort of full stop is a book called Sex and Lies by Leila Slamani, which is specifically about Moroccan life, like contemporary Morocco and the sexuality and sort of gender conversations and lives that happen behind closed doors in a country where extramarital sex is extremely taboo. Like the word taboo is possibly even an understatement for just how not okay it is. Um, And certainly homosexuality is illegal, you know, illegal and criminalized. And I had been really, really wanting and hoping to find a book that was that sort of equivalent, but specifically for Egypt. And Sex and the Citadel is that. I would love, love, love a like updated version because I think a lot would have changed in the last 10 years. But for example, I had no idea uh, until I read this, and I'm not fully finished it yet, but a couple of the women on the trip had finished it and talked about it, that female genital mutilation was and is still huge in Egypt. I know that that happens in different places around the world, but I didn't realise that it was so big in Egypt. There are like some similarities between 
Morocco and Egypt that come through in these two books, but there are also obviously differences. And I just wouldn't have found this book, but for it being in a bricks and mortar bookstore in two of them in Egypt. It sounds great, yeah. but I still haven't read Sex and Lies. It's been on my shelf and tempting me a lot. There's not emails in it, is there? In Sex and Lies, no. <laughs> no, no, I mean, like, because the way that you spoke about it last year was so compelling and I am so interested. Yeah in all of that. But yes, another one to add to my growing list. And the other thing I would say too is that just as an aside, one of the biggest publishers in Egypt of books in English, either written in English or translated into English, is the American University in Cairo. And their bookstore, I went to the campus in Cairo of the American University of Cairo bookstore, and it was so good. Just There's something really special about going to bookstores overseas. And relatedly, the Library of Alexandria, oh my gosh, such an extraordinary building. It was so cool to go to a place and get really nerdy about all of the bookstores. I'm also so lucky to still have that library. How old is that building? Like less than a decade. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, So the original Library of Alexandria, which housed like tens of thousands of scrolls was destroyed and this is a rebuild that happened this century and it has become like one of the most extraordinary libraries how long did it take them to build it oh i don't know years there was like they did that process where there was an international tender and like over a hundred architecture firms put in tenders for it and it's that extraordinary thing now where it's an incredibly modern building obviously and it fits thousands and thousands of readers at any one time, but they have all of these modern elements that have these great um, functional reasons for being there, but with historic catalyzers. So on the walls everywhere, there are like holes, like sort of square holes in the walls, which harkens back to how they would store the scrolls of papyrus, like in holes in the walls. But they're like made into these perfect squares now that have this function where they absorb sound. So it's like, and the, and on the ceiling, there are cutouts in specific shapes because the library is on the coast of Alexandria, the city, which is a coastal city. And the direction that the library is facing and the particular angle of these windows means that it like captures the natural light, but never lets in direct sunlight so that it doesn't like hurt the books. And when you're trying to read, it's the most extraordinary building. And so how was the trip overall? Amazing. I think for a lot of sort of Australians of our generation, we grew up having been taught about ancient Egypt at primary school at some stage or even at high school if you did ancient history. You're and either an ancient Egypt kid or you're an ancient Greece kid. <laughs> Which one were you? Oh, por no los dos? <laughs> <laughs> also, that's the same history. I mean, Greeks were like Alexandria was a Greek city for centuries. Still, when you're a kid, you have your ancient Greek. Do you remember that? There's the ancient Egypt kids and there's the ancient Greek kids. Yeah. I knew that I would be fascinated by the ancient history, by the temples and the statues and the, um, you know, the masks and the mummies and, and the museums and everything. What I didn't anticipate was how beautiful I would find so much of that ancient history. Hieroglyphs are, yes, a writing form, but when you are standing in front of them seeing the original colours in some of the places you go, you can see what beautiful colours they were painted in and how hand-done they all are. 
And it is so moving in the way that if you are standing in front of a beautiful painting or an extraordinarily taken photograph, you are like sort of artistically moved. I did not anticipate that I would feel that way. Like there are places where you can stand and look straight up and the ceiling is just covered in lapis lazuli, blue, starry, painted nighttime with the goddess Newt swallowing the sun and giving birth to it again. It's exquisite. I just... All of that was in the best possible way exactly what I hoped it kind of might be. And then there is the complicated and quite difficult reality of modern Egypt and the, frankly, bad government situation. I did not realise before I left just how extreme um, inflation was there. So as a concrete example, if you do not bring US dollars into the country with you, you cannot get it. We tried a few, not even the like five-star international hotels This is very similar to Lebanon at the moment where yep. people have to like go in with one of my friends who was living there. Um, he's Lebanese Australian and was living there and would have to go in with like a suitcase of, of 10,000 US dollars to like get him through you know, the next few months or whatever of living there because you just can't get it yep. anywhere. The government have, and that has changed within the last year. I don't know exactly what month, but the government basically, they know how badly the value of the Egyptian pound is tanking. And so they are not letting anyone get access to U- to more US dollars because otherwise people would just en masse stop using Egyptian pounds because it's just that horrific and ter- frankly terrifying situation where what you can buy with your money now is just nothing compared to last month and you have no idea what's going to happen next month. So how did you get your money? Did you have your American dollars when you went in? Well, most of us had some, but like you can withdraw Egyptian pounds and they're worth whatever they're worth today. It's like, so it's, yeah, it's not, it doesn't have a particularly negative impact on Breely going to Egypt for three weeks. It has yeah. a, it's, it's a horrific situation for the locals. And what's really troubling, interesting, is that if you just Google Egypt government, it says like representative democracy. And that is just not the reality there. So the current president has um, just changed the constitution such that he can be in charge until at least 2030, election participation is apparently officially about 44% of the population. I would even like question that. What I was struck by was that Egypt has huge agricultural industry and has a huge tourism industry, obviously, and yet so much um, poverty and so much sort of disrepair and horrific uh, health and education systems and it's because of government mismanagement, you know, like this is a country that could and should be doing well and it's not. So that's what you learn and that's what you you get when you travel around the world. But it was an amazing, um, amazing journey. While you were learning all that (laughs) and being moved (laughs) by the art of ancient Egypt, I was being moved by the current pop culture phenomenon (laughs) that is the Eras Tour. That's what I was doing while you were away. Actually, did you have, what, the second month of the best year of your life? Yes. Oh, yeah, I had, like, 
while you were off having like the one of the best, like the second month of the best year of your life. Yeah. Oh, it was tanking over here. Oh, no, what do you mean? How can it tank if you go? In, oh, sorry, are you one of the people who Swifties hate because you hogged tickets by going to more than one concert? Oh, I don't give a shit about that. Oh. The ethics of multiple Taylor Swift tickets, please. Some people have real problems. <laughs> No, no, I went. It was amazing. Uh, I ended up going three times. Wow. Sorry to everyone that my friends are so amazing. So I got tickets for me and my sister in Melbourne, and which was phenomenal. Yep. And my other sister, we all live in different places, and my other sister came to Melbourne. And so we had a sister's weekend, which was so much fun. My youngest sister, Alice, not a Swifty, but she came along to hang out with me. She didn't come to the concert, but she right. hang, hung out with me and Anna we got tattoos together. Oh, my God. What's your tattoo? It's on my shoulder. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. A little satin. I love it. Does yeah. it does, Am I not? Does it mean anything? Is that a gauche question? No, no, no. A lot of Swifties, I don't, would even clock it as a Swifty tattoo, but it's uh, from a lyric, love you to the moon and to Saturn. Cute. Yeah. And so, but when we were in at the tattooist, she was like, it was pretty funny. She said um, the tattooist was like, every tattoo today is a Swift tattoo. And she and I got her to show me the ones she yeah. was doing. Yeah, yeah. And so she was doing um, a lot of a lyric, which everyone loves, which was living for the hope of it all. Back when I was – the whole lyric is back when I was living for the hope of it all, but a lot of the tattoos are living for the hope of it all. A lot of tattoos are of a mirror ball, which is like one of her most introspective songs. Uh, one I think that you could relate to actually and about the feeling of always striving and – feeling like you have to achieve certain things and that what you're achieving isn't worth anything if people aren't, like if you're not there, like providing work for people basically or providing mm. art for people. Very deep song. That's what a lot of people get. But she And the tattooist said, we thought we'd get a lot of walk-ins today, but every single Swifty has booked in and paid their deposit. <laughs> you're an organised bunch. Gold star girlies. <laughs> <Yeah>. We love it. <laughs> and, when, and we booked into a hotel even though my sister lives in Melbourne, we booked a hotel so we could walk from the MCG afterwards oh. so we didn't have to, like, catch trains and all of that. The dream. Yeah, and so MCG is such a great venue. And when we were checking into the hotel, the man was like, "This, the whole hotel is booked out by Obviously. And we said, oh, has it been, like, a bit hectic? And he's like, it's busy, but you're a very well-behaved bunch. <laughs> God, so girlies. <laughs> and so that was – and then my sister Anna and I just had the greatest night. Like, we just – it was – it's euphoric. Like, honestly euphoric. Like, it is an incredible show. It's an incredible feat of physical feat, mm. an incredible feat of artistry. But the vision for the show, how they make a show that engaging and that, like, visually spectacular for – 96,000 people. So mm. basically wherever you're sitting, it is a great show. It's, like, it's amazing. It's something that she's always been very conscious of. And then I had like the most 35-year-old woman weekend where I went, had that incredible weekend with my sisters. We had so much fun. I went to the concert next day, got home, took both my boys to the hospital. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and they had, you probably haven't heard of it because I'd never heard of it, school sores. What is that? It's like a medieval disease. Apparently it was around a lot 40 years ago, but I've never heard of it now. But it's this incredibly ca contagious bacterial skin infection that results in all of these like weeping sores all over your body. And like you have to, if you catch it early, you get antibiotic cream. Maddie and I did not catch it early because when you like, you know, our kids a rough and tumble, like kids get scratches and sores and weird rashes all the time. I had scabs all over my yeah, legs. So, and oh, they yeah. do all the time. So when um, they first complained of it, like uh, the youngest first said, this is sore, 
I looked at it and I'm like, oh, it's a scratch from daycare or whatever. Then when I came back on Sunday and on Friday, uh, Maddie had texted me because I left on Friday and said, I think he's been bitten by a spider. I said, well, take him, like, take him to the doctor. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, think, I don't think it's a spider bite. Like, and he's like, oh, I'll see how he is in the morning. And then he looked in the morning. He's like, oh, it's scabbed. Oh, like, it's just a scab. Like, maybe it's nothing. Like, it is hard to pick. And then when I came back on Sunday, I looked at his leg and realized that instead of one or two, his basically his whole leg was covered <gasps> in them. And I was like, oh, no. And I didn't, I didn't recognize what it was. Then Matt lifted up my other kid's shirt and he had a, the same scabbies stuff all over his stomach and so we knew something was wrong but I didn't know what because yeah I knew, what yeah. the fuck is this thing yeah, I've never heard yeah. this thing and I and it's Sunday so you, we couldn't get into a GP and I thought I've got to go to the hospital I actually in my head had the possibility of measles yeah and I have this like mum chat that we text and I texted it to the mum chat and one person had said I think that's in pedigo which is the other name for it and I looked at it I'm like oh I've never heard of this but I think she's right but I realized they would need antibiotics. If it was, I thought maybe measles, but I thought if it's in pedigo, they need antibiotics. I need to just take them to the hospital. Yeah. And the dead shit pediatrician misdiagnosed them. Oh my God. And he, the nurses were amazing. And the nurses were like, this is weird. Don't know what it is. And the pediatrician came out. I didn't like his manner. I didn't like him. I was put off very much by him. And he kind of didn't even examine it properly. And then he was like, it's chicken pox. Because it's a pediatrician saying that, you're like, well, he's like a senior doctor. I said, okay, it's chicken pox. And I walked out and it's chicken pox. But I just had this feeling that it wasn't. And my mum, who's a nurse, her biggest advice for parents at hospitals is always like, trust your intuition. <sighs> like when it comes to your kid's health, trust your intuition. So I work up. It's then- just, it is hard when you're like also somebody who respects expertise. Oh, totally. Like, it's really totally. hard. And I don't know what it is. And like, yeah. and so exactly, like you you trust expertise and I did trust it. And I've had so many good experiences. I've been going to that hospital for like seven years now yeah. and had so many good experiences there. And But the next morning I woke and I had this massive meeting the next day and my husband had a massive work project that week. And so our kids are like sent home and like with chicken pox in inverted commas. And then the next morning I was just at work and I was like, just had this feeling. I just don't think it's chicken box. I think it's this impedigo thing that my friends had sent. And so I texted Matt and I'm like, how are they this morning? He's like, worse. I'm like, take him to the GP. They walked into the GP and the GP straight away was like, impedigo, school swords. Matt said, oh, the doctor said it was, oh, the pediatrician said chicken pox. And this doctor goes, yeah, a young doctor might think that. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, big reminder for any parent of young kids out there. Like, trust if, you're, if you think it's not right, like, trust, even if you're, you know, you know you're not an expert, just trust yourself and go get your second opinion. Because they need, it was so bad. They were so past antibiotic ointment. They had to go on oral <sighs> antibiotics. But they also, it's so contagious, were home for a week. And they were home for a week when both Matt and I had these insane work weeks. So we were tag teaming, working from home. Like Matt took one sick day with highly contagious children. Yeah, and like, and they look just, and also they feel fine, which is like any parent knows. It's the worst when you have a sick kid who doesn't feel sick because when they actually feel sick, they will at least lie on the couch and feel sorry for themselves. (laughs) But they're like bouncing off the walls together because they they have these sores, but they feel fine. Anyway, so it was like this intense week of being at home, couldn't leave home, tag teaming because of work, couldn't really take time off work go to the doctor on Thursday to get the clearance so that they can go back to school because it's meant to clear up within like 48 hours of antibiotics. 
didn't get the clearance. I had them home on the Friday and then for the weekend, obviously. And they can't, they really want to go to the playground, but we can't take, like, no, you can't. You can't. Them. It's irresponsible. Yeah. Like, like yeah. I could take them on walk. I'd say, you can go on walks around the block. I'll take them to the pub even because they're not, like, co- like having contact with other kids. It's just like, yeah. And they're like, I don't want to walk. I want to go to the park. And anyway, just like my dog. And then on Monday morning, <laughs> when Maddie and I both had hectic work days again, I had to take them to the doctor and one got the clearance and the oh! other one got more <laughs> antibiotics. Oh, what? mate, it was brutal. Like, anyway, and they're jumping off the walls, they're misbehaving, they've got cabin fever, something chronic, and it was just so brutal. And so you were like living your best life, yeah. and I was like with these scabby <laughs> contagious. I'm in my aviators in front of yeah. Hatshepsut's temple, just yeah, like yeah. <laughs> and I'm at and I'm at home, and the, because they're at home for the week, the house gets so disgusting because, like, you know, they're just messing everything up. And I f- finally mopped the floor this week and like cleaned up. I picked them up late, so I finished work, mopped, then went and picked them up, and my youngest came in and he's like. Oh, I hate it clean and started lifting up his toys and throwing them across oh the room. God. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have a mental breakdown over this. Like, yeah, what you feel. What do you do? You've just oh, you finished feel, cleaning oh, and oh, then he's like, I, I hate it clean? Yeah, what, you I fucking want idiot? Yeah, oh, I want my God. Me- he said, I want it messy. And I, so I just picked him up and I, you just pick him up and put him in the bedroom I'm in his bedroom. I'm like, look at how messy it is in here. Enjoy yeah, have a great mess. time. Yeah, <laughs> Enjoy this mess. But, uh, yeah, you can't. At certain points, you can't reason with them. Anyway. Some weeks you talk to me and I go, oh, maybe having kids wouldn't be so bad. And then other weeks you talk to me and oh, I'm right. like, can feel that my reproductive organs just shriveling like, up. Shriveling up. Yeah. <laughs> when, um, oh, and it's always when like you have this big work, like this tag teaming mm. work week, like that's the yeah. killer. Like it's never at a convenient time where yeah. you're like, oh, sick, I'll put in for five sick days from work. I've got the sick certificates, you know. Yeah. I, I'll just hang out with them for five days and watch movies. No, 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 no. no they no, always no, no, do no. it when you have like and these, both. like you're at crunch time of work projects and you need to be in certain meetings. And yeah, it was brutal. Anyway, brutal week for me. Great month for you. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and now that I've talked all this out loud, no wonder I only read one book in the last month yes. because I was either at a cultural phenomenon having the best time of my life or deep, deep, deep in the parenting trenches. <laughs> Anyway, what are you doing the rest of the... Oh, you're recovering from jet lag, I assume. Yes, but we also both have All About Women coming up. Um, We do. I can't wait. Yep. So I'm in deep prep for that and also just getting really excited about it. I know. To be at the... I've never done All About Women. We're going to be at the Opera House. I've got a sad girl panel, Mm -hmm. which I can't wait. And I'm also interviewing the author of Glossy. I saw that. That that must have, like, happened when I was away. Yeah, they asked me to... um, They emailed me and said... Would you be keen on interviewing Marissa Meltzer? And I was like, we, Bree and I just spoke about this a few months ago. I would love to. So I've been prepping that and prepping the Sad Girl panel. So mm. can't wait to see you at the Opera House. Sorry, that's but that's my week as such well. manifesting. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't yeah. it? See you there. Can't wait. You've been listening to Cool Story with Bree and Bridie. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We love a rating. We love a review. Even the person who left a review talking about hating how I pronounce especially, I've tried to correct it for you. 
Um, you can find us on Instagram at Cool Story Brie Bridie. We also now have a Facebook group. Yes, and it's been going off. You haven't, well, you've been overseas, but I've been in it and loving it. Cool Story with Brie and Bridie. And it's a private group so that the discussion can be proper and meaty without trolls, but very easy to join. Fab. This podcast was recorded on Gadigal land. Sovereignty was never ceded and produced by Sam Devonport. Been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie. Get it wherever you get your podcasts.